This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. With this week's summit meeting between President Biden and Russian President Putin, we wanted to bring you a special edition of Intelligence Matters. We went back and curated three different discussions we've had with guests about Russia, then member of the Biden campaign and now Secretary of State Tony Blinken, Russia expert and Georgetown professor Angela Stent, and journalist and staff writer at The Atlantic, Franklin Four. We'll be right back with that curation after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is a special edition of Intelligence Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're going to start today's episode with part of a conversation we had with Tony Blinken on September 23rd of last year. In this segment, Tony talks about then-candidate Biden's foreign policy vision. Let's listen. So look, I would sum it up in three words, (laughs) leadership, uh, cooperation, uh, democracy, which also sums up the profound differences between President Trump and uh, Vice President Biden. I don't think the choice could be clearer or the contrast starker. So bear with me for a second, Michael. On on leadership, whether we like it or not, um, the world just doesn't organize itself. And until this administration, uh, the U.S. had played a lead role in doing a lot of that organizing, helping to you know to write the rules, shape the norms, and and animate the institutions that govern relations among nations. What we have now is a president who has unfortunately abdicated that responsibility, putting us in retreat from our allies, from international organizations, from hard won agreements. And here's the problem. When we're not engaged, when we don't lead, then one of two things is likely to happen. Either some other country tries to take our place, but probably not in a way that advances our interests or values, or no one does. And then you get chaos or a vacuum filled by bad things before it's filled by good things. Either way, that's bad for us. So 
uh, Joe Biden would reassert American leadership, leading with our, our diplomacy. We'd actually show up again day in, day out, uh, but to engage the world, not as it was um, in 2009 or even in 2017 when we left it, but as it is and as we anticipate it will become. Rising powers, new actors, super empowered by technology and information, who we have to bring along if we're going to make progress. And I think he would act with a combination of humility and confidence. Humility, because most of the world's problems are not about us, even as they affect us, and we can't just flip a switch to solve them, but also confidence, right. because when we act at our best, we still have a greater ability than any other country on earth to mobilize others. But cooperation here is critical, and that's the second piece. Not a single one of the big challenges we face, whether it's climate change or mass migration or technological disruption or pandemic disease, can be met by any one country acting alone, even one as powerful as our own. And there's no wall high enough or, or wide enough to contain these threats. But at the very time, we need to find new ways to cooperate and bring other countries along. By nearly every measure, the credibility and influence of the United States under President Trump are in freefall. We'll have to pick up the pieces of this carnage um, wrought by President Trump, uh, salvage our reputation, rebuild confidence in our leadership, and then mobilize the country and our allies to, to meet new challenges. Final piece is this, democracy. It still uh, it reflects who we are, how we see ourselves, and at least until recently, how the world has seen us. But it's being challenged. Um, and the strength of our own democracy at home is directly tied to our ability to be a force for progress in the world and to mobilize that collective action I was talking about. But here's the problem. President Trump's daily assault on our own democracy, on its institutions, on its values, on its people, that's deeply tarnished our ability uh, to lead. At the same time, the flip side is other democracies are a source of strength for our country, especially when we act together. But you know this, Michael, democracy has been in retreat. Freedom House ranks uh, countries, um, and it's done it for decades. Of the 40 or so countries that were ranked fully free from uh, the 80s to the 90s to the early 2000s, half have fallen backwards. There's a democratic recession and autocracies from Russia to China are trying to exploit our difficulties. And yet here again, the very moment democracies look to the United States to be leader of the free world, we have a president who, by embracing autocrats and dissing Democrats, seems to have suited up for the other side. So I think what Joe Biden would do would be to renew our democracy at home and then work to revitalize our alliances and partnerships with democracies around the world. You'll see an America that is leading not just by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. And that starts with democracy. We then asked Tony in the same September 2020 episode how Biden, if he became president, would approach Russia. Here is what he said. So I, I, I came back across something a, a few weeks ago that I um, that I copied and made sure that I kept with me. And I just want to take a second. I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. It's a quote. And it, it, it reads as follows. At the bottom of the Kremlin's neurotic view of world affairs is traditional and instinctive Russian sense of insecurity. Russian's rulers have invariably sensed that their rule was relatively archaic in form. To this was added, as Russia came into contact with an economically advanced West, a fear of more competent, more powerful, more highly organized societies. For this reason, Russia's rulers have always feared foreign penetration. Russians will participate officially in international organizations where they see opportunity of extending power or inhibiting or diluting the power of others. Efforts will be made to disrupt uh, Western national self-confidence to hamstring measures of national defense, to increase social and industrial unrest, to stimulate all forms of disunity 
poor will be set against rich, black against white, young against old, newcomers against established residents. Well, that uh, quote uh, was written um, in 1946 by um, an individual by the name of George Kennan in his mm-hmm. famous long telegram. And mm-hmm. it is eerily on point to what we're experiencing now. We've got a president, unfortunately, who's making things worse, not better. When President Trump stands with Vladimir Putin on the world stage and takes his word about Russia's attacks on our elections over that of our intelligence agencies, that exacerbates the problem. When we have a president who is told uh, that um, uh, Russia may be putting bounties on the heads of our troops in Afghanistan and does nothing, in fact, worse than nothing, by his own acknowledgement, speaking to President Putin at least six times after he got that report and not raising it, not confronting him, and even inviting President Putin to Washington and Russia back into the G7, we have a real fundamental problem. So I would say, you know, uh, quickly, uh, a President Biden would be in the business of confronting Mr. Putin uh, for his aggressions, not embracing him, uh, not trashing NATO, but strengthening its deterrence, investing in new capabilities to deal with challenges in, in cyberspace, in outer space, under the sea, uh, AI, electronic warfare, and give robust security assistance to countries like Ukraine, Georgia, the Western Balkans. Impose real costs uh, where we need to, coordinated sanctions, exposing corruption, being very clear and very specific with President Putin about what he risks, but also maybe what he might gain through trade, through investment, through a seat at the table, if Russia changes its conduct uh, to relieve some of its growing dependence on China. We've got to you know, build our own resilience by hardening election infrastructure, getting dark money out of politics, pushing tech companies to deal with disinformation. But we also have to deal at the same time, and we can, with strategic stability. As we continue with our special Russia episode, we're going to hear what Georgetown professor and longtime Russia expert Angela Stent told us in May 2019 about how Putin became the dictator he is today. Let's listen. So Putin came in uh, as president with one of the goals uh, was to restore Russia as a great power and to put behind Russia what he considered the humiliation of the 1990s. So one thing they're doing is showing the rest of the world that they are a great power despite their economic weakness and that they belong uh, at the they, they need to have a seat in the global board of directors. They should be asked about any important international decision. So that's one thing they're doing, showing their presence and saying to the world, you cannot ignore us. You have to treat us with respect and to take our interests legitimately. And what are the specific things that they do to that end? Like Syria, for example. Right. Well, in Syria, uh, you know, the the West tried to isolate Russia after the annexation of Crimea and the Russians launching a war in southeastern Ukraine. And Putin's answer to that was to go and start bombing uh, in Syria. Uh, he was concerned that Assad might be defeated, which indeed he might have been. And Russia has saved him. Uh, Russia is now, you know, a major power there back in, in Syria. It's by, And it was, again, done by bombing. And in many ways... The way they do this is try, is by disrupting. You can see this now even in Venezuela or a country like that. Uh, it's to go back to areas maybe where Russia withdrew after the Soviet uh, Union collapsed, but just to make it difficult for the West to achieve its goals. Yeah, so great power. Anything else? Pursuit? Or is, or, or is that the driving force here, the well, driving objective? I mean, 
there's, there's also a domestic imperative. This is a group of people that want to stay in power. They've accumulated a, a very large amount of money, which they don't want to lose. They don't know what's going to happen in the next uh, leadership succession. So it's also using the foreign policy to try and keep themselves in power. And Putin has very skillfully appealed to the Russian population, to their patriotism, uh, you know, to increase his, his popularity numbers because they were falling, for instance, before the Crimean adventure. And, and how does that play out? So that plays out in a place like Crimea. Does that play out in other places? It's played out particularly in Crimea, to some extent in Syria in the beginning. Again, the Russian population apparently was proud that Russia was back there, was showing the Americans that they couldn't push them around. I believe there's somewhat diminishing returns with that now. And maybe we can come back to that later, given the economic state of the country. But that is still something that apparently appeals to the Russian population. So you say something very important in the book, Angela, and that is that most people focus on Putin the man mm-hmm. in explaining Russian behavior. But you think, you know, that's obviously important, but you also think that there's there's a bigger issue here, and that's Russia the nation, Russia the nation state. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think Putin sort of exemplifies forces that have been at work in Russia for hundreds of years. Um, and that is, first of all, uh, the Russian sense that they are an exceptional civilization. They're different from the West. Um, the Russian sense, and I quote a famous 19th century poet there, that the West will inevitably be their enemies, that they are, they're going to be opposed to the West, that the West isn't really going to serve their interests. Um, and I think the other thing is this sense of Russian insecurity, because it has uh, no clear borders um, except in the north. And you've always had this tradition for hundreds of years of expansion of Russia's borders, absorbing its neighbors, then retreat when it's defeated, and then reabsorbing those neighbors again. Where does this sense of exceptionalism come from? Oh, I think it's, it, you probably have to go far back in history, um, the way that the Russian state was formed, the role of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, and the fact that, you know, Russia has developed a civilization that is different from that of its Western European neighbors. So does this mean that Putin doesn't matter that much, that if it wasn't Putin, there would be somebody else like Putin? You know, how much of this is history and tradition and culture and worldview on the part of Russia? And how much of this is Putin? So I think any leader who would have taken over from Boris Yeltsin, um, because the 90s was a time of chaos, of um, impoverishment in Russia, and you had a leader who, you know, wasn't very well towards the end of his tenure in office. So I think anyone who would have taken over from him would have wanted to restore a stronger state and would have wanted Russia to uh, resume some, at least a regional, if not a more global role, but to, to, to restore Russia as a, a power that mattered in the world. I think the particular way that it's happened under Putin is unique to him, given his background. Uh, you know, a, a mid-ranking KGB official, a case officer who served in East Germany, then someone who served in the office of the mayor uh, in St. Petersburg. The mayor was sort of democratic-leaning, but that's when they began this sort of rather corrupt system of acquiring assets of of the, 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 the economic system we see in Russia today. Um, and Putin, like 
many leaders has surrounded himself with people who come from a similar background. So he rules with those close to him, many of whom are from the security services. And so I think that has made a difference uh, because I think if you'd had someone who did not come from an intelligence background, it's possible that their relationship with the West wouldn't be quite as bad as Russia's is today. So can you describe him, what kind of person he is? What his personality is like, personality traits, characteristics. How would you describe Putin the man? So, I mean, my encounters with uh, President Putin have been at these annual Valdai Club meetings in Russia where uh, they bring over foreign experts on Russia and we meet with various leaders, including President Putin. Uh, this is someone who's pretty well informed on issues. Uh, when he's in smaller groups and you ask him questions, he doesn't refer to some assistant who's standing next to him. He's particularly interested in things like economics and energy. He can reel off statistics. He has some very strange notions of history, uh, which are quite amusing sometimes. Um, but I would say this is someone who's in command of the facts, is, uh, you know, can be quite direct and almost rude to people when he wants to be, uh, but, but seems to, he exudes by now self-confidence. So let's, let's stick with Putin. So looking back at his experiences, both, both as a young man and then um, as a KGB officer and then as as you said, in the mayor's office in in um, St. Petersburg. How did those experiences shape him? So he grew up um, poor in post-war Leningrad. And this is, you know, um, not just a little more than a decade um, after the siege of Leningrad had occurred when the Nazis st- tried to starve out the city in a million of its inhabitants uh, died in Leningrad. So, and um, his parents lived in a communal apartment like most people did in those days in the Soviet Union. So they were poor and apparently he was an indifferent student in school. And then what apparently raised him up was when he decided to take up judo. Um, and in an autobiographical series of essays that was published when he first became president in 2000, he refers to the, the playing judo, I mean, the learning judo, and uh, that that was the sport that enabled him to transcend this rather um, uh, mediocre, if you like, background. And then also apparently learning German, uh, at which he then did very well. He had a German teacher who saw the promise in him. So if we're to believe this book, this is how he then managed to do reasonably well in school uh, and then um, got himself into Leningrad State University to study law. And we also know again from this book that he had wanted to join um, the KGB as a, at a young age, that at age 16, he presented himself uh, to the KGB and they said, come back and, you know, we'll talk to you later. So I think growing up, um, I mean, an- another book has been written about Putin describing him really as a survivalist. And I think that's part of it, growing up in this post-war Leningrad um, in poverty uh, and in rather bleak circumstances. Um, and then he went to the, to East Germany. He was a young man in his 30s. Um, and I think what really um, influenced him there was, first of all, he enjoyed living in East Germany. It was much, it had a much higher standard of living than the Soviet Union did. He lived better there. But then what happened to him, of course, in 1989 was when the Berlin Wall came down. Um, he was in a building co-located with the East German uh, security services. And, you know, the mob came up and demanded the files. They wanted all their files. They wanted to know what was going on. And so he describes, again, how, spending all night in this building burning papers um, so that nobody could get hold of them. And saying that no one in Moscow was there to help him. In other words, profound feeling of being abandoned 
uh, by the Gorbachev people after all of this happened and then leaving East Germany earlier probably than he would have and coming back to, um, as it then was still Leningrad, but without a job really. Uh, and then finally finding work in the mayor's office. And there, this was something new. He was in charge of foreign economic contacts. And that's when we know he got together with, you know, a group of his friends. Um, they all bought Dutch's country houses in a, in the same place, um, on the outskirts of then what became St. Petersburg. Um, and they apparently started to accumulate wealth. He had all these contacts with foreign business people. And, uh, that was the time when he first met Henry Kissinger, for instance. Um, but apparently he was his driver when he was driving around St. Petersburg. So, so you have these dual biographies there. Um, and then he was brought to Moscow uh, in the mid-1990s. Another thing that I think affected him was the in 1996, the mayor for whom he worked, Mr. Sobchak, uh, there was a rather dirty re-election campaign and Sobchak lost. Um, and that was also something that apparently um, influenced Putin. And he realized that if you have an election, you don't know who's going to win you know, that can turn out badly. And so then again, he was out of a job, but then he was brought to Moscow. And the reason why Yeltsin picked him apparently was because he was persuaded that this was going to be a loyal man. He promised uh, President Yeltsin and his family that nothing would happen to them. Uh, once, How well did he know Yeltsin prior to being chosen? I don't think he knew him that well. I think it was people around Yeltsin, like Boris Berezovsky and others, who recommended Putin to him? I don't think he knew him that well. And and do you do you have a sense of whether he was successful at his career at the KGB? How how he was doing when this all fell apart? So, if you read the memoirs of the man who used to be in the East German secret police as the head of their um, international operations, Markus Wolf, he'll say. This was someone who was barely on his radar screen. He was in Dresden. Dresden was not one of the major cities in East Germany. It was kind of a backwater. Uh, and that he was a mid-level lieutenant colonel uh, in the KGB. I don't know how you would judge how well he did, but he, he certainly wasn't well known. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our special episode on Russia. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So, Angela, how are foreign policy decisions made in Russia? You know, is there a process? Who's at the table? Is it really only a small group of advisors, as we hear? You know, so the decision on doing Syria or the decision on Ukraine, how does that actually happen? Well, of course, we all wish we knew. And we have some of the finest minds in the United States in the intelligence agencies trying to figure this out. This is a government that's run by people who come from the security services. So having said that, what we understand is there is a national security. There's a security council, um, which certainly meets regularly and discusses things. As far as we understand it, on the very important decisions... Um, it would be President Putin and just a few people around him. It could be uh, the defense minister. It could be the head of the SVR. That's the foreign intelligence uh, services. Uh, it could be the head of the domestic intelligence services. Um, it could be 
maybe a few other officials, depending on the issue, who will sit with him uh, and will discuss these matters. We know that the foreign ministry doesn't really seem to have much of a say in any of these decisions and that often the foreign ministry finds out about things, for instance, what happened uh, with the Russia-Georgia war uh, and other issues after they've taken place. There is no, unlike even in the Soviet period, there are very few institutions where you can identify this is what this particular branch, this institution, this office does. Um, On less important foreign policy decisions, It's a wider range of people, but it's very much, I think, still people believe President Putin and a small inner circle. In your book, you wrote that that the foreign minister wasn't involved in the Ukraine decision, Mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. Yes, as far as we know, he wasn't. Annexation of Crimea was something they found out about afterwards. So you believe, Angela, that Putin has largely achieved the objective that you said he was after, right, which is managing return to return Russia as a global player. So he's been successful at what he has set out to do. How do you think he thinks about that? And how do you think he thinks about where to go next? So in my book, I do also point out there are areas where he clearly hasn't been successful. I mean, the whole episode in Ukraine, he has managed or Russia has managed through its actions uh, to unite Ukrainians in a way that they weren't united before. There's always been a split between East and West. That seems to have diminished much more, and Ukrainians seem to have developed a much stronger sense of national identity. Um, and, and I think he would probably also look out and acknowledge at some point that his desire to reintegrate the post-Soviet space has been only partially successful. And, 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 yeah. and what does he want to do in that post-Soviet space? Does he want to actually physically control it, or does he just want to have significant influence over it? He wants to have significant influence, and he doesn't want any of the post-Soviet states to join any Euro-Atlantic alliances, i.e., well, NATO, or to join the European Union. He doesn't want to create the Soviet Union, recreate it, because I think he can't. But he wants to feel, again, going back to this kind of sense of space and insecurity, that the borders of the former Soviet space are really the security perimeter of Russia, and so that none of Russia's neighbors, particularly Ukraine, should move closer to the West. You know, it's kind of interesting, the, the, the way you described Russia, right, as being this insecure nation, and therefore the need to show that it's powerful actually kind of kind of sounds like Putin himself as a person. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably true. <laughs> I think given the fact that he grew up in, you know, the second city in the Soviet Union, uh, that he, um, you know, even when he went to East Germany, wasn't sent to East Berlin. So, yes, it's it's trying, I think, to compensate for some of that, too. And using the skills that he learned probably both uh, as a judoist, as the Russians call it, and in the KGB, using his skills to take advantage of the distraction of the West, the mistake the West makes. Maybe now we go to Russian foreign policy kind of region by mm-hmm. region here a little bit, which I think is a you did a fabulous job in your book. Let me kind of throw them out and get you to react to each one of them. The first would be Europe. And I should say that I found it interesting that you talk about from a Russia perspective, right? You talk about Europe from a Russia perspective as both a model mm-hmm. and then NATO as the enemy. Right. Can you talk about that? That's fascinating. <laughs> so I would say traditionally for Russians, Europe has been uh, admired as an economic model. Uh, in other words, you get Peter the Great, first of all, 
in the 17th century, setting out incognito, uh, traveling Europe to try and learn how, you know, the Europeans uh, managed to have such an advanced economy. So there's always been an admiration for that, you know, even under the communists. What the Russians have been much more wary of is kind of, if you like, the idea of Europe, the ideas that European states have put forward, starting with the Enlightenment, uh, the Renaissance, the Reformation, all of the things that Russia itself never experienced like that. And so those are the ideas of the rule of law, of due process, um, of individual liberties and human rights. And their successive Russian rulers, at least, have been very wary of those. And so what Russia doesn't like about the European Union um, is first of all the idea that a group of countries would give up their sovereignty voluntarily. For Putin, absolute sovereignty, the sovereignty of big powers is very, very important. Um, and then the fact that the, all these European countries can get together and agree on things like sanctions. Uh, and even if individual countries don't like the sanctions anymore, if the leading countries like France and Germany believe in them, then they continue. And what the European Union explicitly is, is a community of values. And so whenever the European Union deals with um, uh, Russia, uh, it talks about it talks about values. So that's the European Union. Now, NATO um, has always been viewed, you know, since the Soviet times as the main enemy. Um, After all, it was founded in 1949 to contain the Soviet Union. Um, and despite, uh, the fact that NATO, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, declared that, you know, it didn't see Russia as an enemy and it wanted to work with Russia, um, it, uh, established a NATO Russia Council where NATO works with Russia. Despite all of those things, that wariness really has, has remained there. And then, of course, the other thing that the Russians, although they didn't complain about it at the time, but have retroactively complained about it was the enlargement of NATO. Um, and starting off with the, with Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic in 1999, where Boris Yeltsin didn't really say very much, but they didn't love it. And then, of course, in 2004, when you had a big enlargement, which included the Baltic states. Um, and now, uh, and since then, um, Russia has claimed that, you know, NATO, NATO is a number one danger. Uh, at a time when NATO itself said we want to work cooperatively with Russia, that's not what the Russians said. But by now, of course, from the NATO point of view, Russia is a major challenge and adversary because of what's happened in Ukraine. Do you think Russian behavior would be any different if NATO enlargement didn't come to Russia's borders? Right. So this is, of course, a subject of big debate. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, people have said if only wouldn't we wouldn't have enlarged NATO, this was the original sin, everything would be fine. I'm really not so sure about that because NATO enlargement in the beginning was largely done also to prevent the Central European states who still held a lot of historical grievances against each other to, to get them, you know, uh, the Romanians and Hungarians, for instance, to agree that they didn't have territorial claims on each other, to get the, the Central European countries to be in an alliance where they accepted the other one's borders and worked together. If there wouldn't have been NATO enlargement, what would have happened to all of those countries? They would have just been kind of bouncing in between in a no man's land in between. And then you probably would have had the temptation for Russia to reassert its influence there. So I am not convinced that if there hadn't been NATO enlargement, we'd have a much better relationship with Russia. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're now going to draw from our June 2020 interview with journalist Franklin Four about a piece he wrote in The Atlantic about Russia and election interference in the United States. So in, in, in your piece, you, you have three sections. One is called Hack the Vote, one is called The Big Fish, and one is called Disinformation 2.0. Walk us through what you tried to do in each of those sections. So in Hack the Vote, uh, I mentioned earlier that the Russians had um, had kind of had probed the the uh, the voting systems of all fifty states, and it was a real question I think uh, that the intelligence community faced in um, coming out of twenty sixteen, which is what did the Russians want from that exploratory mission? It seemed as if they could have done much more damage; they could have caused much more chaos than they actually did in 2016, but they kind of stayed their hand. And it seems like they acquired um, this, this topography of the, um, the digital infrastructure of American campaigns. And so the question is, what can they do to act on that now? And we, we know that from various Ukrainian examples that they're cap- quite capable of, of doing Relatively, they could, they could cause big chaos and knock out systems, or they could do small things that would have big impact. So if they wanted to cast an election's legitimacy into doubt, they could, um, they could alter a voter registration database so that uh, yeah, you know, one number in people's addresses were flipped, which caused confusion, which would then produce long lines at a, at a, at a voting station and people might turn away from the polls if they saw long lines, or at the very least it would create this, they did it at a couple stations, it would create this air of suspicion. And the air of suspicion is maybe just enough to cause severe damage to us. One, one scenario that, um, that I speculated about would be uh, kind of based on what the Russians did in Ukraine is what if on election night in Wisconsin, um, they managed to uh, post fake results on the Wisconsin Board of Elections website. You could imagine how the president or his allies or anybody could seize on that fake information in order to say that something funny had happened and that this whole election um, should be considered illegitimate and discredited. Um, I, you know, I looked at uh, the the Russian tactic of of hacking campaign databases and the possibility of 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 leaking them. And I went back and I revisited the Podesta leaks from the 2016 campaign. John Podesta was Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, and uh, his email was hacked. And I wanted to try to show the precise toll that that takes. I mean, we're well aware how. The information that comes from hacked emails can um, can can distort the politics of a campaign. I think that the uh, the Democratic National Committee's hacked emails did a lot to were, were unfurled in the middle of the Democratic National Convention, and they did a lot to sow suspicion among uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, some of whom never came into the fold uh, and never voted in 
November. But it also, it's, you know, I, I was really interested in some of the mundane um, implications of hack, uh, hacking for a campaign. So Podesta told me that like, in the middle of the last month of this campaign, he was busy dealing with identity thefts who were, who were uh, taking his, his information from these hacks and um, setting up credit cards in their names and trying to get his social security benefits and can most comically of all, um, spending down uh, uh, loyalty points that he'd acquired on the bus that he took back and forth from uh, Washington to campaign headquarters in New York. And, you know, it took, it takes your eye off the ball. And so like it, it really, and it, and there are lots of resources that need to get poured into responding to this. And so it's, it's, it's really a time consuming, emotionally exhausting um, thing to have to deal with. Then I looked at disinformation and we're, we're well aware of the way in which the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg uh, uh, put all sorts of, of disinformation into the campaign. And I, tr- I was interested in the ways in which Russian manipulation um, has shifted over time. And there's a lot that we've done. We've done well here. I mean, I think that uh, the social media companies, uh, for all the flack that they rightfully take, and I've, I've, I, I, you know, they've, they've been kicked, kicked all over the place, and deservedly so. But I think that they've done a lot to try to clamp down on inauthentic accounts, on the bot, the botnets, and um, accounts that are clearly attributable to the Internet Research Agency or other Russian assets. But at the same time, the Russians keep evolving their 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 approach. And one of the things that they've tried to do is they've tried to enlist others to do their business for them. So, for instance, after the the hateful riots in Charlottesville, uh, there were attempts by um, uh, kind of uh, by the left to organize counter rallies. And so, what the Russians have tried to do tried to do was uh, tried to set up. Facebook pages where they kind of seeded ideas, brought people together, and then had authentic Americans do the work for them. So they on their their anti uh, unite the right protest page, they set it up, and suddenly it became the Russian page on Facebook became a magnet for uh, American activists who were authentically interested in what the Russians were talking about, and fake Russians then began communicating with the Americans who then went about organizing their rally. And so it creates a real complicated issue for, uh, for the, the platform companies. I mean, just because the Russians instigate something, you do have authentic Americans using those pages as a way to express authentic opinions and organize rallies that are attended by authentic people. But we see the Russians kind of pushing and prodding and instigating. That was Franklin Four, and this was a special episode of Intelligence Matters, where we curated the best of Intelligence Matters episodes on Russia. We hope you enjoyed it. As we leave this episode, I just wanted to share some of my own thoughts about Russia. In many ways, Russia has become a rogue state, killing dissidents at home and abroad, conducting massive cyber attacks against its adversaries, and propping up similarly minded dictators and other parts of the world, all with the goal of weakening the United States and its allies 
so they are not able to challenge the authoritarian politics that Putin has created in Russia. President Biden's challenge is to deter Putin from such activities, something that President Obama did not accomplish and something that President Trump seemed not to care about accomplishing. Perhaps the secret of deterring Putin is knowing what he is afraid of. At the end of the day, Putin is all about Putin's survival. He's afraid of a democratic movement in Russia that he knows would result in his ouster. So steps by the international community that get him to think that such an outcome could become more likely will get his attention and will have the best chance of success in deterring his rogue behavior. Thanks for joining us in this special episode. Let us know what you think of what we did with this episode. And please join us next week for another regular edition of Intelligence Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm Michael Morrell. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 